Welcome to Fast Asleep. We thank you for being with us. Please know that this is episode two of three parts. If you haven't heard part one, please go back and listen, and then join us here again when you're ready. As we readied part two for you today, we learned that a very good man that we at Fast Asleep have known for many years has passed. And strangely, this man, as we have always known, was a direct descendant of Robert Louis Stevenson. So here we are in the middle of recording these three parts when we learn this. So, to George, we dedicate, if that's even appropriate, these three episodes written by his ancestor. Tuck in, everybody, for part two of A Lodging for the Night. Suddenly, he saw a long way before him a black clump and a couple of lanterns. The clump was in motion and the lanterns swung as though carried by men walking. It was a patrol and though it was nearly crossing his line of march, he judged it wiser to get out of eye shot as speedily as he could. He was not in the humor to be challenged, and he was conscious of making a very conspicuous mark upon the snow. Just on his left hand, there stood a great hotel with some turrets and a large porch before the door. Well, it was half ruinous, he remembered, and had long stood empty. And so he made three steps of it and jumped into the shelter of the porch. It was pretty dark inside after the glimmer of the snowy streets and he was groping forward with outspread hands when, oh, he stumbled over some substance which offered an indescribable mixture of resistances, hard and soft, firm and loose. His heart gave a leap and he sprang two steps back and stared dreadfully at the obstacle. (laughs) And then he gave a little laugh of relief. It was only a woman and she dead. He knelt beside her to make sure upon this latter point, and she was freezing cold and rigid like a stick. A little ragged finery fluttered in the wind about her hair, and her cheeks had been heavily rouged that same afternoon. Her pockets were quite empty, but in her stocking 
underneath the garter, Vion found two of the small coins that went by the name of Whites. Yeah, it was little enough, but it was always something, and the poet was moved with a deep sense of pathos that she should have died before she had spent her money. That seemed to him a dark and pitiable mystery. And he looked from the coins in his hand to the dead woman and back again to the coins, shaking his head over the riddle of man's life. Henry V of England dying at Vincennes just after he had conquered France. And this poor jade, cut off by a cold draft in a great man's doorway before she had time to spend her couple of whites. It seemed a cruel way to carry on the world. Two whites would have taken such a little while to squander, and yet it would have been one more good taste in the mouth, one more smack of the lips before the devil got the soul and the body was left to birds and vermin. He would like to use all his tallow before the light was blown out and the lantern broken. While these thoughts were passing through his mind, he was feeling half mechanically for his purse. Suddenly, his heart stopped beating. A feeling of cold scales passed up the back of his legs and a cold blow seemed to fall upon his scalp. He stood petrified for a moment and then he felt again with one feverish movement. Then his loss burst upon him and he was covered at once with perspiration. To spend thrifts money is so living and actual, it is such a thin veil between them and their pleasures. There is only one limit to their fortune, that of time. And a spendthrift with only a few crowns is the emperor of Rome until they are spent. For such a person to lose his money is to suffer the most shocking reverse and fall from heaven to hell, from all to nothing in a breath. And all the more, if he has put his head in the halter for it, if he may be hanged tomorrow for that same purse so dearly earned, so foolishly departed, Villon stood and cursed. He threw the two whites into the street. He shook his fist at heaven. He stamped and was not horrified. Mm -mm. To find himself trampling the poor corpse. Then 
he began rapidly to retrace his steps toward the house beside the cemetery. He'd forgotten all fear of the patrol, which was long gone by at any rate, and had no idea but that of his lost purse. It was in vain that he looked right and left upon the snow. Nothing was to be seen. He had not dropped it in the streets. Had it fallen in the house? Oh, he would have liked dearly to go in and see, but uh, the idea of the grisly occupant unmanned him. And he saw, besides, as he drew near, that their efforts to put out the fire had been unsuccessful. Well, on the contrary, it had broken into a blaze and a changeful light played in the chinks of door and window and revived his terror for the authorities and Paris gibbet. He returned to the hotel with the porch and groped about upon the snow for the money he had thrown away in his childish passion. But he could only find one white. The other had probably struck sideways and sunk deeply in with a single white in his pocket. All his projects for a rousing night in some wild tavern vanished utterly away. And it was not only pleasure that fled, laughing from his grasp, positive discomfort, positive pain attacked him as he stood ruefully before the porch. His perspiration had dried upon him, and although the wind had now fallen, a binding frost was setting in stronger with every hour, and he felt benumbed and sick at heart. What? What was to be done? Late as was the hour, improbable as was his success, he would try the house of his adopted father, the chaplain of Saint-Bounois. He ran all the way and knocked timidly. There was no answer. He knocked again and again, taking heart with every stroke. And at last, steps were heard approaching from within. A barred wicket fell open in the iron-studded door and emitted a gush of yellow light. Hold your face to the wicket, said the chaplain from within. It's only me, whimpered Vion. Oh, it's only you, is it, returned the chaplain. And he cursed him with foul unpriestly oaths for disturbing him at such an hour and bade him be off to hell where he came from. My hands are blue to the wrist, pleaded Villon. My feet are dead and full of twinges. My nose 
aches with the sharp air. The cold lies in my heart. I may be dead before morning. Only this once, father, and before God, I will never ask again. You should have come earlier, said the ecclesiastic, coolly. Young men require a lesson now and then. He shut the wicket and retired deliberately into the interior of the house. Villon was beside himself. He beat upon the door with his hands and feet and shouted hoarsely after the chaplain. Wormy old fox, he cried. If I had my hand under your twist, I would send you flying headlong into the bottomless pit. A door shut in the interior, faintly audible to the Pope down long passages. He passed his hand over his mouth with an oath. And then the humor of the situation, the humor of the situation struck him. And he laughed and looked lightly up to heaven where the stars seemed to be winking over his discomfiture. What was to be done? It looked like a night in the frosty streets. The idea of the dead woman popped into his imagination and gave him a hearty fright. What had happened to her in the early night might very well happen to him before morning. And he, so young, and with such immense possibilities of disorderly amusement before him, he felt quite pathetic over the notion of his own fate, as if it had been someone else's, and made a little imaginative vignette of the scene in the morning when they should find his body. He passed all his chances under review, turning the white between his thumb and forefinger. Unfortunately, he was on bad terms with some old friends who would once have taken pity on him in such a plight. He had lampooned them in verses. He had beaten and cheated them. And yet now, when he was in so close a pinch, he thought there was at least one who might perhaps relent. It was a chance. It was worth trying at least. And he would go and see. On the way, two little accidents happened to him which colored his musings in a very different manner. For first, he fell in with the track of a patrol and walked in it for some hundred yards, although it lay out of his direction. And this spirited him, spirited him up. 
least he had confused his trail, for he was still possessed with the idea of people tracking him all about Paris over the snow and collaring him next morning before he was awake. The other matter affected him quite differently. He passed a street corner where, not so long before, a woman and her child had been devoured by wolves. This was just the kind of weather, he reflected, when wolves might take it into their heads to enter Paris again. And a lone man in these deserted streets would run the chance of something worse than a mere scare. He stopped and looked upon the place with an unpleasant interest. It was a center where several lanes intersected each other, and he looked down them all, one after another, and held his breath to listen lest he should detect some galloping black things on the snow or hear the sound of howling between him and the river. He remembered his mother telling him the story and pointing out the spot while he was yet a child. Oh, his mother! If only he knew where she lived, he might make sure, at least of shelter, he determined he would inquire upon the morrow. Nay, he would go and see her, too. Poor old girl. So, thinking, he arrived at his destination, his last hope for the night. Hmm. The house was quite dark, like its neighbors. And yet, after a few taps, he heard a movement overhead a door opening, and a cautious voice asking who was there. The poet named himself in a loud whisper and waited, not without some trepidation, the result. Nor had he to wait long. A window was suddenly opened, and a pail full of slops splashed down upon the doorstep. Ugh, Villon had not, mind you, not been unprepared for something of the sort and had put himself as much in shelter as the nature of the porch admitted. But for all that, ugh, he was deplorably drenched below the waist, and his hose began to freeze almost at once. Death from cold and exposure stared him in the face, and he remembered he was of physically tendency, afflicted with tuberculosis, and began coughing tentatively but the gravity of the danger steadied his nerves. 
He stopped a few hundred yards from the door where he had been so rudely used and reflected with his finger to his nose. He could only see one way of getting a lodging, and that was to take it. He had noticed a house not far away, which looked as if it might be easily broken into, and thither he betook himself promptly, entertaining himself on the, on the way, with the idea of a room still hot, with a table still loaded, with the remains of supper, where he might pass the rest of the black hours, and whence he should issue on the morrow with an armful of valuable plate. Why, he even considered on what viands, tasty food, and what wines he should prefer. And as he was calling the roll of his favorite dainties, a roast fish presented itself to his mind with an odd mixture of amusement and horror. Oh, I shall never finish that, Balad, he thought to himself. And then, with another shudder at the recollection, oh, his damn fat head, he repeated fervently and spat upon the snow. The house in question looked dark at first sight, but Fion made a preliminary inspection in search of the handiest point of attack. A little twinkle of light caught his eye from behind a curtained window. Mm-hmm. Oh, what? The, the devil? he thought. People awake? Some student or saint, confound the crew. Can't they get drunk and lie in bed snoring like their neighbors? What's the good of curfew and poor devils of bell ringers jumping at rope's end in bell towers? What's the use of day if people sit up all night? Oh, the gripes to them. He grinned as he saw where his logic was leading him. Yeah, well, Every man to his business, after all, he added, and if they're awake, by the Lord, I may come by a supper honestly for once and cheat the devil. He went boldly to the door and knocked with an assured hand. On both previous occasions, he had knocked timidly and with some dread of attracting notice. Now, when he had just discarded the thought of a burglarous entry, knocking at a door seemed a mighty simple and innocent proceeding. The sound of his blows echoed through the house with thin, phantasmal reverberations, as though it were quite empty. But these had scarcely died away before a measured tread drew near. A couple of bolts were withdrawn, and one wing was opened broadly, as though no guile or fear of guile were known to those within. A tall figure of a man, muscular 
and spare, but a little bent, confronted Villon. His head was massive in bulk, but finely sculptured, the nose blunt at the bottom, but refining upward to where it joined a pair of strong and honest eyebrows. The mouth and eyes surrounded with delicate markings, and the whole face based upon a thick white beard, boldly and squarely trimmed. Hmm. Seen as it was by the light of a flickering hand lamp, it looked perhaps nobler than it had a right to do, but it was a fine face, honorable rather than intelligent, strong, simple, and righteous. You knock late, sir, said the old man in resonant, courteous tones. Vion cringed and brought up many servile words of apology. At a crisis of this sort, the beggar was uppermost in him, and the man of genius hid his head with confusion. You are cold, said the old man, and hungry? Well, step in. And he ordered him into the house with a noble enough gesture. Some great seigneur, a man of rank, thought Villon, as his host, setting down the lamp on the flagged pavement of the entry, shot the bolts once more into their places. You will pardon me if I go in front, he said when this was done, and he preceded the poet upstairs into a large apartment, warmed with a pan of charcoal and lit by a great lamp hanging from the roof. It was very bare of furniture, only some gold plate on a sideboard, some folios, and a stand of armor between the windows. Some smart tapestry hung upon the walls, representing the crucifixion of our Lord in one piece, and in another, a scene of shepherds and shepherdesses by a running stream. Over the chimney was a shield of arms. Will you seat yourself? said the old man, and forgive me if I leave you. I am alone in my house tonight, and if you are to eat, I must forage for you myself. Well, no sooner was his host gone than Villon leaped from the chair on which he had just seated himself and began examining the room with the stealth and passion of a cat. He weighed the gold flagons in his hand opened all the folios and investigated the arms upon the shield and the stuff with which the seats were lined. He raised the window curtains and saw that the windows were set with rich stained glass in figures, so far as he could see, of martial import. Then he stood in the middle of the room drew a long breath and retained it with puffed cheeks, looked round and round him, turning on his heels as if 
to impress every feature of the apartment on his memory. Seven pieces of plate, he said. If there had been ten, I would have risked it. A fine house and a fine old master, so help me all the saints. And just then, hearing the old man's tread returning along the corridor, he stole back to his chair and began humbly toasting his wet legs before the charcoal pan. His entertainer had a plate of meat in one hand and a jug of wine in the other. He set down the plate upon the table, motioning Vion to draw in his chair, and going to the sideboard, brought back two goblets, which he filled. I drink your better fortune, he said gravely, touching Vion's cup with his own. Uh, to our better acquaintance, said the poet, growing bold. A mere man of the people hmm, would have been awed by the courtesy of the old seigneur. But Vion was hardened in that matter. He had made mirth for great lords before now, and hmm, found them as black rascals as himself. And so he devoted himself to the viands with a ravenous gusto, while the old man, leaning backward, watched him with steady, curious eyes. Mm. You have blood on your shoulder, my man, he said. Montigny must have laid his wet right hand upon him as he left the house. He cursed Montigny in his heart. Well, uh, it was none of my shedding, he stammered. Oh, <laughs> I had supposed not, returned his host, quietly. A brawl. Uh, well, something of that sort, Vion admitted with a quaver. Hmm. Perhaps a fellow murdered. And that's all for now. Good night.